Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Tuition may be going up at UConn. Bridgeport's outgoing mayor left some nice presents for his replacement. And take a look in your email box today. How many political fundraising messages do you see? And how many of them are the most urgent thing ever? Those are a few of the stories we'll cover in the wheelhouse. Our weekly news roundtable today. We're joined, as always, by Colin McEnroe, who's the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. i just like to say, Coke Brothers. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Coke Brothers. We'll be talking more about the Coke Brothers in coming your email you. box. Coming, coming to get you. Coming up in just a bit. Also with us is Susan Bigelow, columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Hello there, Susan. Good morning. And joining us from the Hartford Current is columnist Dan Har. Hello there, Danny. Hello, friend. Our, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Let's start, though, with the state budget. As lawmakers continue to hammer out a new budget agreement, the Connecticut Business and Industry Association is airing radio ads across the state. Connecticut's budget crisis demands immediate attention. The choices aren't easy, but we must reform how state government operates and close short and long-term deficits without raising taxes. Okay, so the CBIA is airing it in radio ads right now, and there have been a lot of ads having to do with various ways in which the governor has tried to close this budget deficit, probably talking about hospitals in just a little bit as well. Uh, Dan, you've been following this quite a bit this week. I mean, where do we stand with the need to fill a budget hole, which Democrats and Republicans agreed was around $350 million, but frankly, we don't know how big it really is. Where do we stand right now? Well, there are a lot of things we don't know. Uh, first of all, the 350 to $370 million target is bigger than the budget hole now. The, the two official estimates of the budget hole are 122 or so million dollars, and that is by both uh, the governor's budget office and controller Kevin Lembo, or $254 million. Did I say billion? Million, yeah. I'm, I'm on the billion, federal. Million. I'm on the federal. Uh, $254 million, which is by uh, the nonpartisan office of uh, fiscal analysis at the legislature. And so what they're doing is they're trying to fill a bigger hole than they have for two reasons. One, they don't trust that the hole is only going to stay as big as it is because we're going in the wrong direction. And two, they really would like to give back some of the business tax increases that everybody regrets uh, putting in. And so CBIA's message is getting across. We will talk later about whether the hospital's message is getting across, but CBIA's is. And before we uh, move to some of those things, you've been uh, taking a look at how they've been trying to make the decisions about what goes in, what goes out. You know, are we going to are we going to cut benefits for state employees? How much are we going to look at the state workforce? I mean, what are you finding about the real plans that are out there, Dan, to to close this shortfall now, but the bigger shortfall that's coming? It's all short term thinking. Uh, we're trying to do long term thinking, but we're so not at, not set up to do long-term thinking, both because of the imperatives of the moment and because of the, the sort of 
profound lack of in-depth analysis about anything. And I would start by saying that the Office of Fiscal Analysis does a great job with what they have, but they're not doing dynamic economic long-term studies. They're doing, hey, this is what this costs and this is what that costs. And they do a great job at that. I'm not criticizing them. What I'm saying and what I said in a column today is when you look, for example, at the retirement incentive program, which was supported by half the people in the room and then got dropped, uh, we really don't know the long-term implications. We've had five of these since 89, and no one knows what they did to the economy because we haven't looked at it. And we don't look at it, and if we don't look at it, Susan, it's really hard to make decisions based on you know information we don't have. That's right, and we don't know anything about what it does to uh, the actual employees, even those who stick around. What does it do to worker morale? What does it do uh, for um, institutional memory? All these things that are really important in the workplace. And all of this feels like it's just... Uh, band-aids all, because the, the bigger problems and the bigger deficits are still coming and we have no idea how to really fix them. We just seem to be plugging leaks. When it comes to things like early retirement uh, offers, Colin, we've talked about this a little bit in the past and, and this is one of, the, one of the things that comes up when we're trying to fix these uh, short-term holes. If we don't do any sort of long-term analysis, I know it all seems like wishful thinking. So the sort of thing we talk about on the wheelhouse an awful lot. But, I mean, is there anything new this week <laughs> that, no. we're, you know, that we're looking at than, than we have been in the last couple of weeks? Not as far as I can tell. I mean, we're not in the room for a lot of this stuff, but, no, not as far as I can tell. I mean, and it's probably worth noting, and Danny would probably have a better command of this uh, than, than most of us, that, I mean, one of the problems, one of the reasons we do short-term thinking is the problems happen over the short term, right? And in other words, one of the reasons that this – uh, this deficit, which nobody knows the actual size of, is bigger than it probably should be, uh, is also simply because, uh, at least the way that, that I understand it, withholding, in other words, the stuff that's coming out of, your, out of people's paychecks, uh, is at least not rising as fast as it needs to rise. Uh, another reason is that borrowing costs uh, are probably going to go up. We borrow a lot, um, things like that. So those are sort of things that kind of happen in a herky-jerky way, uh, and they're cycles to which our destinies are yoked. The, the one thing that I would say, just like what is long-term thinking? What would long-term thinking look like? Like imagine we ever did it. Um, and, and to me, uh, at least at the level of the state workforce, I, I think you do have to make hard choices, but you have to make choices too. I mean, they're going to be unpleasant. Nobody's going to like them, but you've got to make them. And I, I now, this is Groundhog Day t- time now. I mean, I think I've said that this a long, uh, many times. I, I sort of feel like, I don't feel like looking at the state government, it's overstaffed. Um, and, you know, since the so-called concessions of Malloy's first term, you could argue that the benefits aren't like wildly out of line. So what's left to look at? And I know I'll, <laughs> I'll get emails about this. I, I still think they should have years ago, and maybe they still should, form a blue ribbon panel. You can't do this like under pressure, you know, with three days to go or something, to look at salary. Look, look at salary and look at everybody's salary and see if, in fact, sal- salaries at the state level uh, make sense. I mean, some of them make sense. Some people are probably underpaid. Some people are wildly overpaid. But it's really kind of the last thing you can look at. And you've got these contracts coming open pretty soon. It would be nice to have a strategy for thinking about them. Well, actually, uh, when he was talking with reporters after the budget negotiations yesterday, Governor Malloy talked about overtime for state workers, part of salary. No one wants to pay overtime. But no one wants to pay the the benefit cost big either. Um, And so you try to balance those things um, because if you if you say we're going to we're going to we're going to cut overtime by hiring a lot of people, then you have to factor into that. A, they're going to come in under a contract that may designate 
minimum staffing and other minimum work hour requirements, and you got to pay for the, the benefit of VIG. And so I think the assumption that all overtime is the same isn't true. The governor preceded that remark by talking about what he called 24-hour departments. And in 24-hour departments, that's where the big problem is in overtime. And that's, of course, precisely to Collins' point where you can't cut. Uh, you can't cut prison guard staffing. You can't cut group home uh, reimbursement for 24-hour functions. And that's a very big part of the spending problem on the bureau- on the bureaucracy side. That's not a big part of the overall spending problem. That lies with deficit I mean, with uh, the uh, pension, Medicaid, and and so forth. Well, when Len Fasano was here, uh, the minority leader in the Senate, and we were talking about some of the some of the rules, though, for things like overtime. You know, s- someone uh, has to stay an extra hour because someone else is late because of a snowstorm, and because they're in a certain type of job classification, they don't get the one extra hour of overtime that they that they actually spend at work, but they get two or three or however many hours the, the contract calls for. And is that sort of what Colin is talking about? I mean, it's, it's not just the, the base salary, but it's just some of these work rules that tend to pile up over time. Those, those are the sorts of things that annoy the sensibilities of people who think they have a good sense of, of management and, gee, we shouldn't be doing this and we shouldn't be doing that. Those aren't the sorts of things that add up to the type of money that gets you out of a $2 billion hole over two years. Yeah, and, and I think that that's really what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about little tiny pots of money that maybe don't add up to much. But then again, I don't know, Susan, whatever the governor says, this budget hole right now, the $350 million, isn't that much compared to a $20 billion budget. Well, but we still seem to be solving the small hole year after year after year. Maybe it does add up to real money if we just start saving $3 million here and $30 million there. Right. I mean, we can do that. We can save $3 million here and $30 million here there. But we can also... Uh, we can try and fix it, and we can plug the hole for now, but what if revenue craters again? And it seems like we are in this cycle where we are having trouble uh, keeping revenue up to meet the demands of the state's needs. And it feels like everything is kind of broken, that spending is broken, that uh, government salaries and benefits are broken, and that revenue is broken too, and all of these things are not working together. And that's the problem of the long-term thinking that we, we've been talking about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think I sort of... Yeah, there aren't the big pots of money that fix the problem anywhere, right? I mean, I think I think we're sort of past the point of saying, well, we we shouldn't do that because it, it's not the kind of the big pot of money that will fix the problem. It is, you know, as you were almost saying there, Mr. Dankowski, Everett uh, Dirksen's famous, you know, a million here, a million there. Pretty soon, you're actually talking about some real money, <laughs> um, and it sort of rings true still today. That that ultimately, you know, it's it. There's sort of this one basic question. How much government do we want and how much does it cost? And then how we're going to pay for it, how much, gov- how much government that is. Now, within that, there are just all these tiny little nodules of, of questions. I mean, overtime is a really interesting question. Some of that overtime does involve pension padding. I mean, we, we know that. That's why there are state police troopers who make a quarter of a million or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, is there a better way to do that? Is there a better way to think about that? I'd like somebody to try anyway. Uh, We're talking in the wheelhouse today, our weekly news roundtable about the state budget. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. Of course, you can also tweet us at where we live. We've got a tweet from Kelly who says, salary does need to be revisited. Let's start with UConn. Oh, okay. Well, we might move on to something else here, here, Dan. Well, and 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 this is a this is a really big issue. At, in the midst of all this stuff, we have an announcement from the University of Connecticut that over the next four years, tuition for residents would increase by more than three thousand dollars, which amounts to a thirty-one percent increase. So we're we're talking about paying up at the state capital, having to do with 
you know, layoffs or cuts or job changes. We're talking about social services. And now the state's flagship university is saying we're going to raise tuition as well. Well, I'm on a different side of this than I would have been three years ago because the university that was given as the example uh, against, which, against which UConn is a great bargain was the University of Vermont where I have a child. And so I'm saying, gee, I'm looking at those numbers and saying – that's a really good bargain. At $13,000, which is at the end of the four-year cycle of increases for in-state tuition per year, that's a great bargain. There is absolutely no way that these increases should not go into effect for in-state students. If you're an in-state student paying $13,000 to go to UConn, I'm sorry. That's a great bargain as UConn cracks the top 20 in research universities. We can talk about the salaries of people. We can talk about professors that teach one course. We can talk about the culture of universities which are inherently inefficient and how can we change that, and that's great. That's long-term. Short-term, raise the tuition. We, okay, but short-term, how about before raising the tuition, we actually start to address some of those questions. We say, are we spending the money at the University of Connecticut the way we need to be spending the money before we just raise the, the tuition? Because it's not like tuition is going to go down if they figure out a way to save costs, Dan. No question universities spend more money on admission administration than companies do uh, per function. There's no question. We see it. Uh, those are our friends. <laughs> you know, there's no question about it. But how do you address that? It's a cultural change. It's not like I'm going to take and fire these three people. It's not an overnight change. And also, I've talked with uh, the university president and some other people, and that's they say that's not re- where the real money is. The real money is in, in some very high salaries for some very prestigious uh, professors who do relatively little teaching. All right, Susan. Yeah, I mean, universities and and tuition. It's always it's been going up and up and up for so so long. My worry is that we are starting to really price a lot of people out of higher education, and higher education is so important. Um, is this something that's really going to be affordable? The the whole idea behind having public colleges is that they're affordable and accessible for people. And if we're talking about education and closing the achievement gap and everything else in this state, if we're pricing people out of being able to go to our state schools, then what's the point? Uh, Danny says it's a really good deal compared to the University of Vermont. Well, yeah, it's probably a very good deal compared to some other universities, but it still doesn't mean that it's affordable. It still doesn't mean that people can actually go. And, and, and one of the things in the in the plan, Colin, is the amount of tuition increase for in-state residents is about $3,000. For out-of-state residents, about $4,000. Once again, sort of sending the message that UConn is becoming a school for people to come to from outside of Connecticut, not so much for people who grew up in Connecticut to go to school at. Yeah. First of all, Danny's just mad because in Vermont he has to buy his kid a gun. Um, <laughs> but um, and just to be clear, I mean, I, just so people understand, so the tuition's thirteen. The check you're writing is probably twenty five, something like that, right? You look at room and board fees, all this kind of stuff. So UConn uh, for in-state students is is more than thirteen, considerably more. On the other hand, yes. Out-of-state students are essentially subsidizing uh, in-state students' education. So you want a lot of out-of-state students. So Herbst's best argument really is make it a kind of place that's super attractive to people who will make essentially a bad financial decision to send their kids to a public university in a state they don't live in. You know, that's not a smart thing to do, but so you want your – you want kids to sort of want to do something that's economically kind of stupid. You know, but I just want to back up and just sort of sure. say like where the big money is, the thing that Dan was saying before. 
you know, once again, it's kind of like, okay, so where are the big pots of money? Well, the big pots of money aren't anywhere, but some discipline would really help. We know in 2012, uh, UConn was singled out by Bloomberg News uh, as, as an example of administrative bloat. Um, I can actually read a paragraph from that article. Uh, UConn has a $312,000 a year provost, 13 vice deputy and associate vice uh, provosts, including one overseeing engagement, who makes almost $275,000 a year. The university has seven vice presidents and 13 deans. The uh, President Susan Herbst, who receives a half a million, it's more than that now, um, has a $199,000 chief of staff. The police chief, this is the new cheap, cheap inexpensive police chief, not the old one. Uh, he was re- replaced with a $165,000 a year official with a narrower job. And since then, there were the famous raises in which, for example, Ward Manuel, the athletic director, got a $22,500 raise, bringing his salary up to $472,500. Uh, the provost and executive vice president got an $18,500 raise. And I could go through that. There's lots more that are sort of within that rubric too. Now, yeah, none of that's a big pot of money, but it's a pot of money. <laughs> this is not a lean, mean operation at the executive level. Well, and it's it's not just about how much money, but Dan, it's about the, the discipline of it, right? I mean, if, if what uh, the governor talks about is shared sacrifice in a time of I guess it's not permanent fiscal crisis anymore. That ended last week when Ben Barnes said it was over. But I think it's really important to note that a little bit of financial discipline before you ask for $3,000 more for in-state students who are already paying the taxes to go to the university, maybe that's a good thing to do. I'd love to see a little bit of it. And the problem with discipline is that UConn is entirely run by insiders. There is no questioning. Uh, I shouldn't say no. There are some people on the board who are questioning. But as we saw with the budget process, which was uh, shockingly held in secret <laughs> last spring, it's just it's, – it's, it's not – the sense that you get of sort of an outside overseer board. And when you look at the state legislature, the General Assembly, something like, what is it, 35 percent of the people or some very high number either went to UConn for grad school or uh, undergrad. And so that's not an overseer either. And so we really have no entity that's looking at this and saying, hey, that's not okay. But I mean, part of where a lot of this is coming from and where a lot of this bloat comes from, uh, yeah, they could use some fiscal discipline and everything else. But where this all kind of comes from is there's a culture of panic in higher education, mm-hmm. especially here in the Northeast, where the number of college students, where the number of uh, students graduating from high school is actually on the decline. And there's a lot of worry right now in higher education that there will not be enough students in the very college-heavy Northeast to support all of the programs that they want to do, all the faculty that they have. And that there's a there's a real culture of worry right now. So I can almost see where some of this is coming from, that they want to have the best people and the best facilities to attract the students here. I, I are you love, saying, love are you saying the, that the permanent state of fiscal crisis has been replaced by a culture of worry? <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Ben Barnes has also announced uh, the permanent state of fiscal crisis. He's going to replace that with a period in which he will not wear pants. I don't think that's true. Uh, Colin is cracking. That's what I'm telling you. He's starting to lose it. It's the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com. Dan Haar from the Hartford Current. When we come back, we're actually going to finish some of this long-term thinking uh, conversation, talk a little bit about whether or not there's long-term thinking in our transportation plan, whether or not maybe the state might need to think a little bit more like these businesses that we keep uh, worrying about leaving Connecticut like GE. And we'll talk about some other stuff as well with you at 860-275-726 here on the Weehouse on where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined at the Wheelhouse today by columnist for the Hartford Current, Dan Haar, Susan Bigelow, who is a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com, and our own Colin McEnroe. Colin, what is on your show this afternoon at 1 o'clock? Well, the term evangelical Christian has been synonymous for probably since at least the 1980s with the religious right, the moral majority, all that kind of stuff. They all vote Democrat. They all, have, they all vote Republican, excuse me. They all have very conservative views, except there's this really interesting movement of progressive evangelicals uh, who really reject an awful lot of that in terms of how they look at matters of race, climate change, and probably especially um, the rights of um, gay and transgendered people. So we're going to be exploring that. There's a new book out about it, and we'll talk about how big that movement really is. Interesting. That's coming up uh, this afternoon, 1 o'clock, on the Colin McEnroe Show here on WNPR. Before we move too far away from some of the budget uh, questions we were talking about, I just want to get back to a few notions on long-term thinking. And I'll first go to you, Susan. You know, a report last week says the poor quality of Connecticut's roads and highways result in a loss of more than $5 billion. The governor has said over and over again he, he doesn't really want to do two things uh, when he's trying to fill this budget hole with lawmakers. He doesn't want to raise taxes on anybody because he thinks it stunts economic growth. And he wants to make sure that we continue to invest and we start to invest more in a transportation plan. Those are both seemingly uh, long-term thinking uh, that we've been asking for, especially in the transportation thing. Do you think this is the right type type of long-term thinking right now? Well, I think we're going to have to look at how we fund transportation much better than we actually are right now. Um, the, the, the idea of a transportation lockbox has been uh, brought up over and over again. It's not there yet. Uh, the, it looks like the federal government's got its act together and is going to be providing more money for transportation. I think that there's a bill working through now. You just uh, said the federal government has its act together. That was slightly. funny. Anyway, please continue. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it hasn't been passed yet, so cross your fingers. <laughs> um, and so there's a possibility that we'll see more money from the federal government to fund some transportation projects. But the governor is right that we need to actually really overhaul our transportation systems. Uh, we don't have the money to, to fund it right now. The gas tax, the revenues from the gas tax are still going to go down. They're going to go down and down and down as long as cars get more efficient. Um, there, Nobody wants to put tolls on the highways. Nobody wants to raise taxes to pay for this stuff. So, yeah, we need to do it. It, it costs us a lot of money, but nobody wants to actually pay for it right now, and that's our problem. You do have to raise gas tax. The gas tax hasn't raised in, in what is it, uh, 15 or 18 years. Oh, wow. And it, it does keep going down. The two good times to raise the gas tax are when gas prices are high and when they're low. Because when they're low, people are getting a benefit anyway when they pay at the pump and they're not noticing an extra nickel. It should go to 30 cents a gallon uh, at the retail level. And uh, and when they're high, of course, they're so high that you know the extra nickel doesn't make a big difference. We're not going to be able to pay for this $30 billion transportation initiative, which is important in the downstate, in the Fairfield County area. I question some of the spending up around you know Hartford and Eastern Connecticut, but it is important to get people in and out of New York. We're not going to be able to pay for it out of budget, out of regular taxes. It has to come through tolls and gas taxes. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I do question it up here. I mean, I think anybody who drives a lot on interstates around here thinks there's a problem. And obviously, when gas gets cheaper, people drive more, right? So um, I, I actually sort of sal- salute Malloy for having priorities. I mean, one of the problems that I think faces Connecticut, and that when you talk to legislators in the throes of the budget debates or the throes of a legislative session, um, you know, Dan and I both tend to kind of parachute in at the last minute like other people are much more conscientious uh, about uh, about covering the whole session. But when you talk to people, they say, we don't know what the priorities are. We don't know what the theory of this budget is. I mean, I mean, legislators say that. So 
beginning to establish priorities and, and places from which you will not back off is at least the way of creating an outline of policy and thought around something. And so I kind of salute that, actually. So good. We know where you stand about that. Uh, and if you want to join us, 860-275-7266 or tweet us at where we live. We got a, a tweet from Urban Data that says evidence shows that people have been priced out of higher education for a very long time. Uh, something that Susan said, and a tweet from Neil, too bad state government can't just threaten to move to Florida to fix all of its problems. Uh, let's talk about a few other things. There's a lot to get to uh, today, but Governor Daniel Malloy was in New Haven yesterday. He visited the Planned Parenthood facilities there in the wake of the attack in Colorado. Afterwards, he stopped by WNHH and spoke with the New Haven Independent's Paul Bass about why he was there. I support him. I stand with him. Uh, I think uh, the way that they've been treated uh Uh, by uh, Republican governors, Republican congressmen, Republican senators is disgraceful. I think the uh, tone of the discussion is uh, disgraceful. And Susan, this echoes something that we heard from the president the other day. He was giving a press conference in Paris. It was wide ranging. He talked about a lot of things, but he was asked about Planned Parenthood. And there seems to be coming from uh, the governor there and from the president there a sense that the rhetoric around Planned Parenthood and the political talk around Planned Parenthood, if, if not a direct tie between that and the violence that we saw, it certainly is something that needs to have, uh, have a greater voice or greater visibility. What do you hear in, in the governor's comments? Well, here's, here's Governor Malloy getting into the culture wars uh, again, which is something that he's been doing more and more. Ever since, ever since Newtown, he has been um, out on the national stage, really, uh, talking about guns, talking about uh, this kind of mass shooting and also talking about rhetoric coming from Republicans and from hard right conservatives. And Planned Parenthood is one of those sort of perennial targets here. Uh, you know, I think he's I think he's absolutely right. I think that the rhetoric creates this awful climate where you turn the people who work at Planned Parenthood into monsters that you can get rid of, uh, that you have to eliminate no matter what, because uh, there people are talking about, oh, it's genocide and it's it's awful and evil and it's like Hitler and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that the, the rhetoric creates this awful, awful culture around what Planned Parenthood is and isn't. And we talk about this stuff an awful lot, Colin, but I mean, sometimes language really, really does matter. And over the course of the last couple of years, I think we've seen some instances of this where uh, very extreme language then later gets turned into some sort of violent act. And then we step back and go, wow, maybe that was more than just uh, nasty talk. Maybe that's something that we should really, really think about toning down. Yeah, I'm not sure that you could ultimately moderate that kind of language. I mean, the, okay, the language that Carly Fiorina uses, you know, about videos that she's seen that nobody else can see. I mean, I'm not sure how much that infiltrates, like, the guy, the Colorado guy, where you, like, read the stuff in all the capital letters that he writes on chat boards. And stuff like that. And you're, I'm not sure there's a, you could draw a line from Carly Fiorina to him. He seems to be operating on, on his own frequency. Um, I, I will say this about, I just want to go back to Governor Malloy for a second, because I... You know, at the end of Starman, uh, which is a very important movie about public policy, obviously, uh, Karen Allen asks Jeff Bridges why this superior race of aliens that includes him bothers to study Earth. And he says that, well, people from Earth are very fascinating. She says, why? And he says, you are at your best when things are worst. Um, And that's sort of – I think you can sort of say that about Dan Malloy. Now, obviously, he's (laughs) carrying water for the Democratic Governors Association, right? I mean a lot of what he's doing right now represents their understanding of what effective talking points are. And they know they're not going to win this election by backing away from Planned Parenthood. They're probably going to have to hug Planned Parenthood. They're going to – they may even want to do that. And same with Syrian refugees and stuff like that. They've got to distinguish themselves. He's a standard bearer for that right now because of his role. But I think also it's in his nature. I mean the the 
language that he uses seems to come pretty naturally to him about what's right and wrong. So as frustrating as we all find him uh, on a number of levels and about a, lot, a bunch of different subjects, on, in these areas, actually, he, you know, that's when his strength comes to the fore. And I think it's a really important point. We've, we've seen politicians in the past be put into these situations where they're supposed to toe a specific line or be an attack dog on a certain issue, and it just doesn't fit very comfortably with that person. But these issues that you bring up really are Dan Malloy issues, and the way he communicates them, I think, are, is very good. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I listen to the Slate Culture Gab Fest, and Emily Bazelon, who lives in New Haven, says, well, my governor isn't turning away Syrian refugees. My governor, <laughs> you know, and it is sort of like you at least can say those things. Unlike the Syrian refugee issue, the Planned Parenthood is a safe place for Democrats to be because you're protecting both victims and the ideology around uh, uh, reproductive choice that you espouse. Uh, there was a comment by J.R. Romano uh, two days ago about the Democrats take, taking and politicizing this issue. Um, and while it's true that you can't draw a straight line between the rational debate and the shooter in Colorado, at least in this case, unlike most random acts of violence, there is a connection to be had. I am not saying that the rhetoric led to the shooting, so I don't want to. I don't want to have to defend that. But at least there is some dotted line there. And so the Democrats are in a safe place relatively. They still have to force uh, have to have people say, look, you're politicizing it. Uh, we're going to get to some phone calls here. And as a matter of fact, just a moment ago, Colin was talking about how uh, columnists like like Colin McEnroe and Danny Haar, you know, parachute into the Capitol, learn a little bit about the budget, write some stuff on. And then there are the people who are there every single day, like Keith Fanta from the Connecticut Mirror. Hi, Keith. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Hey, what did you hear that you wanted to comment on? Well, I have. I, I'm the world's biggest Dan Har fan. No, that's that's not true because I am Keith. But but please continue. I just when he mentioned about gas taxes, he did not leave out that Har in the old country actually means big fan of Exxon. <laughs> that's absolutely. I, I just wanted to clarify one thing. We have two gasoline taxes in Connecticut. We have one at the wholesale level when they bring the gasoline to your gas station, as well as the excise tax that you pay officially when you pump it. And the problem is both are built into the price you pay. And while the retail flat gas tax, Dan is correct, hasn't changed since 2000, we've actually, between 2005 and 2007, had the largest gasoline tax hike overall in state history. And then we got a booster shot in 2013. I mean, I think people probably aren't remembering anymore, you know, the sting of paying 4.35 a gallon back in 2008 when when they were at the worst, when we were probably paying 60 cents, six zero cents a gallon of that to the state of Connecticut. But what those, all those cumulative gasoline tax increases have done is they they remind people every time they go to the borders that whenever the politicians say, well, you know, if you don't like the gas prices, it's it's big oil. no, because we're always significantly higher than Massachusetts, than Rhode Island. And, and ironically, on some occasions, you can go from Fairfield County into New York and, and get cheaper gasoline. And that's why I do think there will be gas tax increases probably within the next year because there's no other alternative and because prices overall are low. It's not a political layup simply because... The public has been reminded for the last decade that Connecticut hits them harder at the pump than just about any other state. Uh, Susan, did you want to jump in quickly? Well, sure. Uh, 
I live in Enfield and I commute to Springfield every day, and the gas prices are actually pretty comparable in Massachusetts now because Massachusetts has kind of done some of the same things. But after all of this gasoline tax increase, why can't we pay for transportation still? Why do we still have this huge gap? Yeah, there's that. And Danny? Uh, it's a good point by Keith. As with other things, Connecticut's tax is not so much high or low as it is volatile. Uh, Keith uh, Fanna from the Connecticut uh, Mirror. Keith, I think you're supposed to say, I'll hang up and take my answer off the air. <laughs> no, I think just an answer to what Susan said, the problem is, unfortunately, probably since about 2007, we've built fuel tax revenues as a significant portion of our general fund, of, of the revenue stream that funds non-transportation programs. And even when, in theory, we finally um, weeded that money out, there's other money that we were supposed to be putting into transportation that we reneged on, even as we were dedicating sales tax money. It seems like money never gets handed to the to the transportation fund without uh, some other money coming out of the bottom of the, you know We have more holes drilled into the bottom of the transportation fund. <laughs> And He's then of having a relaxing morning, ladies and gentlemen. When the gas taxes eventually go up, you will see the sales tax money dedicated to transportation taken back. Yeah. Keith is going to parachute off the Capitol Dome. I want to make give a, Keith a jetpack to get him out I just, of there. I, I just want to make a quick point about the Please. holes on the bottom of the transportation fund. To that exact point, Keith yesterday asked the governor whether the 350 to $370 million in savings and cuts was going to be, quote, real. And the governor turned to him and said, you being a budget purist will say no. And so that smoked out. The, the very real fact, which we, none of us had really thought too much about, is that we are going to, in this package, now have some budget trickery. We don't know what it is yet, but at least Keith successfully smoked that out. As, as he usually does. Keith Van, uh, the budget guru from the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks for calling in, Keith. I appreciate it. Thanks for it. having me on. Uh, let, let's go to Tony in Waterford. Uh, hi there, Tony. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Uh, thank you, uh, Dan. Um, look, at, I just want to comment on uh, the the governor's plan for transportation. Um, I'm the head of the Chamber of Commerce of Eastern Connecticut, and the governor is doing exactly what is long overdue and should have been done years ago. You cannot plan and, and uh, develop a, a, an efficient uh, infrastructure over governor's uh, election cycle. These are 20-, 30-year plans. It has to take place, and the person who commented on that he doesn't think that Eastern Connecticut needs uh, attention, uh, I'm not sure if he ever comes to Eastern Connecticut, especially on the weekends during tourism oh, season. Hey, well, hey, hey, Tony, I just want to break in. This is Tony Sheridan uh, calling from Waterford. And so, Tony, but help us. We were talking earlier about priorities, and the governor says that we want transportation as a priority in the state over some other things, which I think we can all agree makes a whole lot of sense. We have to figure out how exactly to pay for it. Now let's prioritize within the state. We've got traffic congestion in Fairfield County. We've got rail systems that don't work. We've got bridges that uh, uh, shut down everything from Amtrak to Metro North all the time because they swing open and they, they don't close once again. The needs in southeastern Connecticut and in central Connecticut are great. How do we set priorities when everyone needs a little something out of this well you're right everyone needs something out of this um, we have two lanes running from um, approximately madison all the way to uh, the rhode island border on on the major artery of the, of the state um, it's 20 years behind in terms of uh, proper development that that uh, section of uh, route 95 we have um, we should be running trains from new haven all the way to westerly 
Um, we're not doing that. We, the governor has made some progress in this. It is a huge issue, and it's an issue. It's huge in part because the, the um, previous governors have allowed this matter to just sit and just really uh, fester. Mm, well, and so I, I, the governor is now faced with trying to, say, catch up at a time when uh, budgets are very restricted. And, uh, but transportation has to be a top priority because it impacts just about everything else we do. Uh, Tony, thanks so much. I'll leave it there. Uh, Dan Har. I think everybody does agree that we need to finish the Route 11 spur to take pressure off of Route 2. Uh, no? no? Okay. All right. So I take that back. Not everybody agrees. That would, of course, make 95 even worse. I do agree that the two lanes is bad. I think it's telling the fact that some of the worst traffic jams on that stretch of 95 is are on weekends for beach traffic more so than weekday uh, business traffic. Okay, well, we've got a lot still to cover, and we beach need lives matter. Uh, we need to talk about <laughs> we need to talk about Bridgeport. Uh, there's a brand new mayor there. Looks an awful lot like the old mayor. We'll be talking about that, and also we'll be considering some of those fundraising emails that you get, maybe hundreds of them throughout the course of the week. That's coming up on the wheelhouse with Dan Har from the Hartford Current, Susan Bigelow from CTNewsJunkie.com, and our own Colin McEnroe from WNPR here in the wheelhouse on where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Denkoski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, an African-American Hartford resident returned from a breakfast run recently. And when he got home, his daughter told him, you look like a criminal. He was wearing a hoodie. This, uh, in this next hour on Where We Live, coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk with Gareth Weston about the impact of this event on his life. We're also going to preview two events that talk about race, racism, and the power of speech. The next Connecticut Forum will be hosted by NPR's Michelle Norris. We're also going to talk about an event coming up tomorrow night at Connecticut College on free speech that I'll be moderating. There's a lot to talk about tomorrow on Where We Live. Hope you can join us. Today's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable with Colin McEnroe, Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com, and Dan Haar, columnist from the Hartford Current. Uh, Joe Gannam is no longer the former mayor of Bridgeport. Today is day two of the new Gannam era in Bridgeport. He was formally inaugurated last night. I've learned that in America, if you're true to a cause, work hard, and are not afraid to ask for a second chance, you can find that moment of redemption. Joe Gannam back in office in Bridgeport. He's already made a lot of appointments to his new administration. But in the final days in office, Bill Finch, the outgoing mayor, was quite busy. Uh, According to a number of sites, he authorized retroactive pay increases for dozens of discretionary employees, uh, appointees, excuse me, about a dozen of whom received uh, termination letters on Monday in anticipation of Joe Gannam's arrival as mayor. Uh, Supposedly, he got a raise himself. Uh, He signed up the uh, police chief. Uh, on his last couple days for another contract, Colin. Boy, every time we think that Bridgeport just gets as weird as it possibly can, we've got a new mayor in here, and these last couple days of the Finch administration just seem weirder. Yeah, although things in Bridgeport are so difficult to understand if you're not there on the ground in Bridgeport. It just... So, I I don't know. I I actually think Finch may be getting kind of a bad rap about these raises, the way that I understand it anyway. So, these raises, these raises for sort of political appointees, people like Finch, his communications manager and stuff, were all tied to um, some union negotiations for what are called supervisors. But that's like all kinds of different... It's like librarians are in there, all kinds of people. I'm pointing at a librarian as I say this. (laughs) Um, So, um, what happened apparently was 
the council, the city council tabled a tentative agreement with that union and then didn't act on it. I think they got all caught up in the election uh, and they didn't act on it. And there's a state statute that says that if you don't act on something like that within 30 days, at least the union lawyer says this is the force of that statute, um, it, it essentially goes into effect. So, I mean, there's a question about whether Finch made it go into effect like a day or two early or something. But but basically, it looks as though the city council is as much, if not more, to blame for not paying attention to that 30-day window that that's why these races got in, went into effect. So, yeah, Finch is going to get like you know an extra ten, twelve grand, something like that, probably. And uh, of course, Ganem gets that raised too, so he's not that upset about it. Uh, Susan. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, I am the librarian that that Colin is pointing to. <laughs> it's, it's, it's why I know everything. Um, but this this seems like this gives Ganem an out now for if the things kind of are tough. If he has to make a lot of tough decisions, he can say, "Well, look, the problem is that Finch gave, saddled me with all these raises and all these problems." And I've got this police chief that he doesn't like. And, you know, it, it gives him an excuse. And, and probably just what he needed was more excuses. And, and that's really what it is, Danny. Again, is it real money? Is it going to cripple the city of Bridgeport? Probably not. Is it something that probably is giving Bill Finch a, a, a pretty uh, a black eye on the way out the door, maybe unfairly? Well, sure. But it just doesn't look the way we all probably want it to look. But as we said over and over again, we're not in Bridgeport. We're here in Hartford having this conversation, and so it probably doesn't affect us. It just it looks really bad, I think, from the outside. I'm feeling remorse for not parachuting into Bridgeport yesterday instead of the budget. <laughs> uh, but it does give some cover to Ganem. It also takes away the eye from the this this sham of an immaculate redemption, which didn't really occur. And you you use the word, you use the word, you use the word. I see no evidence of any real personal redemption having happened. Hopefully we'll see something happen in the form of good government that where the, where the redemption won't matter. Oh, you said good government. So let's talk about this. An issue from the 2014 election is still being discussed in the courts. Yesterday, final arguments were made in Hartford Superior Court about whether state Democrats can ignore a subpoena looking for emails between Governor Malloy and his aides. The Democrats' lawyer, David Golub, argued yesterday that state investigators are just asking for too much. So we gave them the bank account statements. So so we gave them the contributor lists. So we gave them the documentation about how the mailers were paid for. So we gave them the list that, we, that the Democratic Party used to determine whether money came from state contractors or not. What we wouldn't give them and what we say is beyond what is necessary for the investigation that is being articulated here is internal communications. So before I turn you loose on this calm, this is all part of a state election investigation into whether money in the Democratic Party's federal account was used to support Governor Malloy in a state race. Federal accounts allowed to accept contributions from state contractors, which is, of course, not allowed by state law. Well, we've been looking at this for weeks now, and so we're getting closer to the end. Um, yeah, so uh, David Gobb's a great lawyer. I also feel like I have to say that, but because um, it's true. But um, so a lot of things he's talking about, I think, are things that are just public records, right? I mean, most of the things he just said, so we gave them this, we gave them that. Well, most of that is stuff that they have to file. You, you're actually allowed to have that. Yeah, yeah well, you, they have to file that anyway. So the real question is, and the thing that the party clearly wants to avoid is showing what the ask was and who did the ask and how did they word it. So if you asked contractors to come in at 20 grand, who asked the contractors and what did they say when they asked? If any of it's in the form of an email or some other kind of obtainable communication, what did they say? You know, did they say Dan would really appreciate it or, you know, I mean, not Dan Har. Um, <laughs> you, you know, what did they say? And and that's clearly what SEEK, the prosecuting agency, ultimately wants to know. I think there was a 
in one of the articles I read, somebody from SEEK or the Attorney General's office said, well, you know, we never said it was all just about the mailer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, and the implication is we want to know how you guys operate, how you do business. And I think that's a legitimate concern. It's certainly within the scope of what SEEK's supposed to do. And again, SEEK is the State Elections Enforcement, Enforcement Commission. Commission. So I don't know, Colin, at, at, at the end of the day, do, do, we, do we learn anything new about the way um, state elections are funded. Anything new out of this in, in this trial, which is now going to go almost into the next election cycle here? Well, conceivably, we'll learn something. I mean, we kind of already know it, I think, but we, we can learn. I mean, if, if in fact there was anything that resembled pay for play, you know, or, you know, a dog whistle level of pay for play, I mean, that's certainly worth knowing. And I think also we put the fear of God into them. I mean, I come back to, uh, you know, the uh, Mandel from the state Democratic Committee said that this investigation will have a chilling effect on how the state uh, Democratic Party operates. I want it to have a chilling effect. <laughs> That's, That's okay. why we have those laws. It's yeah, like saying yeah. RICO has a chilling effect on the mafia. <laughs> well, we want it to. <laughs> I don't remember that ever coming up, but that's uh, pretty good. Uh, Susan? Uh, this just is, is more of the Democrats ruining campaign finance reform that they they put in place in the first place 10 years ago. Um, I just feel like, okay, we can chill this, but... The money is going to find another way. It always does. It seems like this is, you know, it's like throwing a rock in a river. Um, you know, the, the water will f- flow around it no matter what. Yeah. I can't, I'm not going to defend Democrats here because this is bad and looks bad. But what, you, what you're seeing is that in states that are democratically controlled, the big money into campaigns comes from generally contractors doing business with the state versus Republicans who are getting their big money from companies that are subject to regulation. Unfortunately, the most recent last decade round of campaign finance reform regulated the former but not the latter. And so the problem is that the Democrats are facing an uneven playing field uh, because of Citizens United and other issues like that and have to unfortunately conduct abuses like this. Well, what's funny about all this is is it really goes back to, at at its heart, a mailer, something that you would get in the mail, a very old-fashioned way to try to raise money or to try to get a vote. Uh, Supporters of political candidates get... uh, uh, we got lots of emails, uh, maybe hundreds a week, asking for financial support. Now, one email supporting Senator Richard Blumenthal caught our eye, and Colin's eye in particular. Maybe you could just read a little bit from this email, Colin. Okay, so this is from the state Democratic chairman, Nick Paletto. He's actually a really good guy. He didn't write this. But anyway, yeah, it says to, you know, whichever donor you are, I really hate to bug you on a holiday weekend, but this is a big deal. We've got a hu- huge, all caps, and very Trumpian, all catch. We've got a huge FEC deadline tomorrow, our first one since we passed the one-year out mark from Election Day, with the Koch brothers hard at work to take out Senator Blumenthal and Democrats in Connecticut. We need you now more than ever. And it goes on to sort of list various amounts of money that you can give. And, <laughs> and so you you read that and you think, what exactly? I mean, I, it's not the only one that you got and it's not the only no. one that you got this week. I mean, I don't know how many I get. I, I get confused about what huge deadline I'm supposed to meet, either from a Republican or a Democratic fundraising email that I get. All right. Yeah. So the deadline, they always talk about the deadline, you know, it, it, it's just it does sound like you're getting something from, you know, like Ed McMahon's going to give you a check or something. If you, But uh, so the deadline is just one that they have to meet. It's a filing deadline. It's informational. You know, I mean, it doesn't you don't win or lose or anything. I mean, nobody does based on that deadline. It's just the F- FEC requires certain filing deadlines, just like how much money have you raised. So that's a completely false thing. Um, and, you know, the Koch brothers thing, which I think Danielle, Danielle Altamari has done some reporting on, it's not really 
quite reasonable to say that the Koch brothers have targeted Dick Blumenthal. I think they did, or one of them was involved in a fundraiser for a bunch of candidates that might have included, did include, I think, August Wolf, who, by the way, in other mailings like this one is described as a Tea Party candidate, which I think is also not true. But, you know, this is how you raise money these days. It's how you raise money these days. I mean, I, I assume at this point now, saying Koch brothers in a Democratic mailer, Susan, is an awful lot like just saying boogeyman. It doesn't really matter if it's specifically true. It's just what people will react to. Right. And people are, Democrats especially, are so afraid that they're going to get buried in money, uh, that they're going to get buried in in money from uh, Republican donors and wealthy people who are voting Republican. Um, And they're they're so afraid of this that this is is all these emails are trying to stab at that. Uh, And and all I have to ask about, Danny, is, you know, um, you see over and over again big money Republican candidates, whether it's it's Mitt Romney or it's Tom Foley or it's Linda McMahon, and everyone gets worried about being buried under a sea of big money, and it just doesn't seem to necessarily work that way. Well, it certainly won't work against Dick Blumenthal, who has about as safe a seat as Barbara Canelli had back in the uh, 80s and 90s. But I want to make the point to amplify what Colin said, that money that the Democratic Party is raising – under the name of Dick Blumenthal is not going to to go to Dick Blumenthal. And that's where it's going to go to other candidates who need it. And that's another part of this. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, ideally, if it's being raised by the state party, it is subject to some limitations, although the way things are unfolding in court these days, it's kind of difficult to see whether the Democratic Party accepts those limitations. <laughs> those limitations or not. Uh, you can certainly send us, uh, tweet us or send us emails with some of the best emails that you've gotten from uh, the Democratic or the Republican Party. We would love to read them on the air. I want to thank Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thanks as always, Colin. Koch brothers. Uh, Susan Bigelow is a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. And thanks to Dan Hart, columnist for the Hartford Current. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives along with Lydia Brown and Betsy Kaplan and Josh Nalea. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Our interns today, Zachary LaSala and Nate Gagnon. Uh, you can continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. If you're not satisfied with just the audio of today's broadcast, which you can find online, you can watch it later on CTN. They were here with their cameras as well. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live. Where We Live.